0: Formal prosecutions in front of a grand jury began in June of 1692 in Salem town. The first woman to be brought forward was Bridget Bishop, who was being accused of bewitching five young women. Evidence against her included the touch test, in which an accused witch is blindfolded and made to touch an individual suffering from fits, who will then cease if the person is indeed a witch as well as the supposed presence of a third nipple on her body, a sure sign of witchcraft, although the third nipple was not found on second examination. Multiple men from Salem town came forward to further testify their belief that Bishop was a witch, and ultimately she was found guilty and sentenced to death. She was hanged a week later. By the end of July, five more women are tried and found guilty, each executed by hanging in Salem town, and an accused man dies in prison. August brings us six more that are tried and found guilty, including John and Elizabeth Proctor. They are all hanged, except for Elizabeth, who is temporarily spared due to her pregnancy. September turns out to be the busiest month with eleven more people found guilty, and four of the accused pleading guilty to the charges. The problem was that there weren't a lot of options for these accused individuals, largely due to the puritan's beliefs. If they plead guilty to the charges, they would ultimately be spared the gallows, but would forever be ostracized by the community as a confirmed witch. If they continued to profess their innocence, they were likely to be hanged, but they believed that they would be seen as innocent in the eyes of god. A third option, however, was refusal to plea at all, a tactic known as standing mute, as at the time, a person that refused to plead could not be charged. This option was utilized by only one of the accused at Salem, Giles Corey. The english had an old process in their legal system, when someone would refuse to plead, which involved the individual being laid down with a board on their chest, and stones would continually be placed on top of the board until the person pleaded. Giles Corey, aged 81 at the time, was subjected to this pressing torture to force him to plead. The torture went on for two days, as the sheriff insisted he plead, and Corey would only reply, more weight. More and more stones were added, and occasionally the sheriff would even stand on the board himself, but Corey still refused to plead. A witness says that during the pressing, Corey's tongue would be forced out of his mouth, and the sheriff would force it back in with his cane. Finally, Corey succumbed to the torture and died, and due to never being tried, he died an innocent man. His final words are claimed to have been, more weight. By the end of October 1692, over 200 people had been accused of witchcraft, 62 of them by Anne Putnam Jr., and 19 had been executed by hanging. At least five others died while imprisoned, but contrary to popular belief, no one was burned at a stake in colonial America. It seems that people began coming to their senses after October, however as many of the accused were released from prison, no more arrests were made, and no more executions occurred. A number of the people still in prison were tried and found not guilty of witchcraft, but three were found to be guilty. Warrants for their executions were written up, but the governor issued pardons for each of them. The Salem witch trials finally ended in May of 1693, with no more accused left. In the years after, family of the executed individuals petitioned for a reversal of attainder to undo the blemish of the convictions, and for financial compensation. Members of the various churches began repenting for their actions as soon as a decade later, and in 1706, fourteen years after this began, Anne Putnam Jr. publicly asked for forgiveness for her accusations, claiming that it wasn't out of malice but out of being deluded by satan. In 1711, a bill reversed judgement against 22 of the convicted individuals, and financial compensation was divided out among survivors and relatives. The salem witch trials were certainly a dark spot in americas early history, a manic and cruel period driven as much by superstition as it was by petty differences. While there were certainly strong religious motivations in the witch hunt, it's foolish to ignore the political and economic climate of the area at the time. People were upset, and managed to focus their anger into the organized murder of a number of people who didn't align with their way of living. Thankfully, America has grown beyond the bygone days of witch trials, but there are important lessons to be learned from Salem and there are plenty of places around the world where women are still being put to death for witchcraft. Without both reason and compassion, we can see the evidence of what horrors can occur in a community, and we can learn from history. The Salem Witch Trials Fear and superstition have been guiding forces for mankind for thousands of years resulting in the countless loss of life. Occasionally, fears are founded on logic and reason, but much more often they are not, instead being founded on irrational worries, ignorance, or hatred. Accusations of witchcraft, the practice of magic spells and rituals, and subsequent witch hunts have been occurring for at least 2,000 years around the world. Between the 15th century and 18th century in Europe, tens of thousands of individuals were executed after being convicted of witchcraft, 80% of which were women. Despite this massive body count across Europe, generally when people think of witch trials, they think of Salem, Massachusetts, where 20 people were killed during a witch hunt in the 1690s. The salem witch trials have had a drastic effect on pop culture throughout the last century, but the facts tend to get warped in the process. Witchcraft accusations and executions were already well underway in europe by the 1600s, as belief in witches moved from believing that certain people simply possessed supernatural abilities, to believing that witches specifically made pacts with satan for their powers. For a time, witches were divided between white witches, who were practitioners of folk medicine and benevolent abilities, and those that practiced black magic, abilities used for evil or selfish purposes. Most individuals considered to be witches were pretty much just local healers, who also acted as mediums between the physical world and the spiritual world. In time, however, things changed as superstition spread, and the christian church changed its stance on witchcraft. Surprisingly, in the 8th century, condemning someone as a witch was outlawed, and burning a witch was punishable by death, as witchcraft was taught to not exist at all. This didn't exactly prevent people from hunting witches, but it's notable. The catholic church began changing its tune in the later middle ages, however, remaining skeptical of witchcraft, but beginning to officially investigate and condemn the practice. Witches were blamed for practically every problem to befall a community or country, from crop failings, to storms, to droughts, and so on. A very famous witch trial you're likely familiar with is that of Joan of Arc, a French girl who believed that God instructed her to assist the French king in winning the Hundred Years' War. After rallying the French troops into a series of victories, Joan was captured by the English, who weren't too impressed with her story of God being against the English, and put her on trial for heresy. Of course the court quickly found her guilty and burned her at the stake, a common execution for heretics as it was believed their bodies would not be brought back on judgment day. Joan was around nineteen years old when she was executed but she would later be made a saint after the war ended. We're getting off topic though, as we're supposed to be talking about Salem. The point is, and this is probably pretty obvious, that witch trials by the 17th century were highly motivated by religious superstition, as communities looked for easy scapegoats for all their problems. The church fully supported the practice, and they even had handy quotes from the Bible to back them up, Such as Exodus 22, verse 18, Thou shalt not suffer a witch to live. Witch hunts reached their peak in the mid 1600s, particularly due to a man named Matthew Hopkins, who declared himself the Witchfinder General and led a group to hang more people for witchcraft in England than there had been in a hundred years. He even published a book in 1647, The Discovery of Witches which outlined his witch-hunting methods. This leads to a good segue, as 1647 also happened to be the year of the first recorded execution of a witch in the American colonies. The puritans that migrated from England disagreed with the English church on a lot of issues, but definitely not on the subject of witchcraft. A woman named Alice Young was hanged in 1647 in Hartford, Connecticut, possibly due to blame for a recent influenza outbreak. Witchcraft had been outlawed as being punishable by death five years prior in the colony of connecticut. Massachusetts would have their first witch execution the following year, hanging a woman named margaret jones, thanks to evidence gathered through methods outlined in the newly published book, the discovery of witches. According to the book, an accused individual should be made to sit in a specific position for 24 hours while being watched. If they are indeed a witch, an imp would appear to feed off the witch, as they depend upon the witch for daily sustenance. The governor of Massachusetts, John Winthrop, recorded seeing an imp in the clear light of day, and so she was executed. Brilliant. By this point, witch mania was fading away in Europe, but it was just ramping up in the American colonies. It would never reach the fever pitch of the European witch hunts, thankfully, but dozens of people, men and women, would be accused of witchcraft throughout the second half of the 1600s, with a number of them being hanged. Finally, that brings us to Salem, Massachusetts in 1692. Salem at the time actually consisted of two communities, Salem Town, a bustling economic area, and Salem Village, an isolated farming hamlet located several miles away that supplied the town with food. Politically, Salem Village was a part of the town, but many puritanical people in the village didn't care for the new merchant class taking over Salem. It didn't help that there were some people in the village, those that lived closer to the town, that accepted the changes. The population of Salem Village was known to be quarrelsome, arguments about property lines and grazing rights often breaking out. Two families with extended members that lived in Salem Village, the Putnams and the Porters, didn't get along whatsoever, further contributing to the polarization. After a while, the people of Salem Village wanted their own minister, rather than walking into Salem Town all the time. Their first couple ministers each left after a couple years, as the congregation failed to pay their full rates. The third one wasn't ordained by the parish in Salem Town, so he had to go, but the fourth stuck around, despite the Salem Town Parish not caring for him. Samuel Parris was accepted by the village as their minister, but he seemed to only increase the bickering between the townfolk as he would make church members suffer public penance for small infractions. With all the background info out of the way, we can finally get around to the actual Salem witch trials. Things kicked off in January of 1692, as two girls, the daughter and niece of Reverend Samuel Parris, began to have strange fits. They each screamed, threw things around the room, uttered strange sounds, crawled under furniture, and contorted themselves into odd positions, according to an eyewitness account. The girls also complained of being pinched and pricked with pins, but a doctor could find no evidence of any ailment. More strangely, other young women in the village began to exhibit similar behaviors. Modern theories suggest these were cases of epilepsy, boredom, child abuse, or mental illness. Samuel Paris's daughter and niece, aged 9 and 11 respectively at this point, accused Paris's south american slave, Tatuba, of practicing witchcraft. It's theorized that Tetuba had told the girls about voodoo and witchcraft prior to this point, and although she initially denied the accusations, she would soon confess after being thoroughly beaten by Samuel. She confessed to Samuel that she was not a witch but she had made a witch cake to help determine who, if anyone, had afflicted the children. The witch cake, a concept of white magic, consisted of rye flour and the urine of the afflicted person, which was then fed to a dog, an animal that it was believed the devil occasionally took the form of. The dog would then supposedly point to the culprit. Tatuba's husband gathered the urine from the girls and Tituba was the one who baked it. Surprisingly, it didn't work, and the neighbor that suggested it was admonished by the reverend before confessing her sins. Tituba went on to appear in front of the town and confessed to being a witch, saying that the devil appeared before her and asked her to serve him. She described in detail her encounter with the devil, and also implicated two other women that were on trial, that had already denied the accusations. She later said that Paris had beaten her until she would confess and accuse the other two women. Tuba would also mention that there were other witches in the region, including in Boston, but wouldn't name names. This started a wildfire of accusations in Salem and surrounding towns as the witch trials truly began. Surprisingly, Tatuba remained in jail throughout the trials and was not executed, but was eventually sold to another owner. Tatuba was an easy target for accusations, due to her ethnicity, and the other two women first accused were looked down upon by the stricter puritans due to their ways of life. One was a homeless beggar, and the other had remarried her indentured servant and took over her late husband's property for herself. The rivalry between the Putnam family and the Porter family would contribute greatly to the accusations, as one of the afflicted girls, Ann Putnam Jr., would continue to vehemently accuse those outside of the family of witchcraft. Martha Corey would be the fourth woman accused, as despite her dedication to the puritan way of life, she had a checkered past, and claimed in the early days of the trials that the girls were fabricating their ailments. Ann Putnam Jr., and another afflicted girl, Mercy Lewis, who worked as a servant for Thomas Putnam, immediately accused Martha Corey of witchcraft. This became a graver problem for the populace, because if such a member of good standing with the church could be a witch, anyone could be. A fifth woman in the village was accused a week later, Rebecca Nurse, by the reverend's niece. The primary means by which the accusers pointed fingers at these individuals was through spectral evidence. Spectral evidence were claims by afflicted individuals that they had dreams or visions in which the supposed witch appeared and harmed them. Some protested that this was not proper evidence, not on the grounds that it's ridiculous as you might expect, but instead with claims that the devil can appear in any form regardless of permission. Many magistrates fully believed however that the devil required a person's permission to use their form in a vision, and thus spectral evidence was admissible. In late march, a few weeks after the initial accusations and arrests, the four-year-old daughter of one of the accused is also accused of witchcraft. The four-year-old was interrogated by local magistrates. Where she confessed to being a witch and claimed to have seen her mother consorting with the devil. Anne Putnam Jr., ever vocal, claimed the child was deranged and would repeatedly bite them. Thankfully, the girl was not executed for witchcraft and was later released from jail. but sadly, her mother gave birth while imprisoned to another girl who died while in jail. Meanwhile, A servant working for John and Elizabeth Proctor began to have fits, claiming that she was seeing visions of Martha Corey's husband, Giles Corey. John Proctor was dismissive of the girl's claims, along with the other afflicted, saying that the afflicted girls should be the ones being accused of witchcraft instead. Obviously, the Putnam family wasn't too happy with that, and Elizabeth Proctor is soon accused and a short time later, John becomes the first man to be accused. By the end of April 1692, Giles Corey and a former Salem minister are also accused, and by this point the problem had spilled outside of Salem village. Salem town was well aware of the witch hunt, and practically every extended family member of the suspected witches was being interrogated. Witchcraft was taken seriously so every accusation was looked into by local magistrates. By the end of May, 62 people were in custody, and one of the first three women to be accused had already died in jail.